0: You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we're going to talk about some movies. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism that is produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics and the Humanists, Atheists, and Agnostics of Manitoba. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at L-U-E-E-Podcast at winnipegskeptics.com, or you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at slash L-U-E-E-Podcast. My name is Jim Newman. Today I have with me Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Robert Schindler. Hello. And my lovely wife, Laura Creek Newman. Hello. So today we'll be talking about uh, several movies, uh, including The Life of Pi, Source Code, Wreck-It Ralph, The Lost Skeleton of Cadavra, Prometheus, Contagion, Looper, and the 2009 reboot of the Star Trek franchise. Uh, There will probably be a few spoilers, although I think we'll try to keep it to a minimum, and we'll try to warn you before they happen. But uh, consider this an abdication of all responsibility. So proceed at your own risk. Although we were going to start our discussion of films with Star Trek, uh... We had two marriage-related news items that we wanted to bring to everybody's attention. Uh, First of all, we wanted to issue a congratulations to our music director, Ian Leung, who was married in a pirate-themed ceremony on March 9th. Congratulations, Ian and Mallory. You guys make a lovely couple. And Robert, you had another wedding-related news item that you wanted to talk about to maybe lead us into our Star Trek discussion.
1: Of course. Uh... I really wanted to say uh, congratulations to Jean-Luc Picard uh, for uh, his latest marriage to his lovely fiancée. I'm not sure what her name is. Uh,
0: I believe it's Sonny Ozel.
1: Gandalf will be officiating the wedding. So that's just bringing two nerd uh, realms together, mashing them together, and nerdgasms all around. So uh, Patrick Stewart will be getting married by uh, Ian McKellen.
0: And I believe when Ian McKellen announced it, he said, well, I'm here to announce that I will be marrying Patrick Stewart. <laughs> and <laughs> cheers went up everywhere.
1: <laughs> and then they posed for a beautiful picture, and uh, we hope the wedding photos turn out just as well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see him in, like, his Gandalf the White robes, uh, officiating that, that ceremony.
1: <laughs> uh, I would, too.
0: Speaking of nerd uh, realms colliding it was recently announced that J.J. Abrams, who directed the Star Trek film uh, that we're about to talk about, has also been slated to direct the upcoming Star Wars film. Uh, Not a reboot, but a continuation of that particular franchise. And the comments that it's too much power for any one man are coming from all directions. Uh, At the same time, however, I think that J.J. Abrams is probably better suited for Star Wars than for Star Trek So why don't we get into the Star Trek discussion? So uh, this Star Trek film uh, that came out in 2009 uh, rebooted the franchise um, in that it used a time travel sort of MacGuffin to get the plot going and basically set uh, the entire course of Star Trek history on a separate parallel timeline so that they can go back and do basically Star Trek, the original series, but as films uh... with all of the original characters but uh... they are not burdened with having to maintain any sort of continuity which uh... for for those of you who have ever seen a prequel of anything or even a sequel of anything you know that continuity issues are uh, huge and in a universe as rich and complex as the star trek universe uh, even ignoring all of the expanded universe sort of extended realm of the of the books and the comics and like that, there is a lot to keep straight. So this really not only does it uh, make their life easier if they can ignore continuity, but it also uh, frees them up to take the plot in new and different directions. The, the film is basically... Uh, The beginning of Star Trek, introducing you to Kirk and Spock and McCoy, uh, all played very well. Uh, And up front, I have to admit that I did find the film immensely enjoyable, uh, even though it strayed far enough from Roddenberry's vision to not really be considered a Star Trek film. Um, That said, uh, Star Trek experienced quite a bit of shall we say, mission drift uh, over the years. And I honestly feel like some of its darkest moments, uh, like the Dominion War, for example, were among its best, even though Roddenberry may not have approved.
2: Okay, but science.
0: Okay, And, science. and I'm
2: excited because I, I lied when I said I had only seen one of these movies because I somebody made me watch this one. I actually remember um, listening to an interview with Phil Plate afterwards, and he was, like, super excited about how when... One of the red chairs gets sucked out into space. There's no noise, yeah, so I remember that
0: the the noise just <laughs> cuts out, and it's yeah. a really a beautiful moment because it's shocking in a in a way that the audience isn't given to expect. I mean, you still have like the ship like warping in, and you know you can you can have the assumption that when you see those exterior shots and you hear like the hum of the engines, you can assume that you're hearing the inside of the ship, even though you're seeing the outside of it, and you get plausible deniability that way. But yeah, that moment right near right near the beginning where there's a hull breach and suddenly all sound goes away and you just see people like being not sucked, but blown out <laughs> sure, into space. Yeah. Let's <laughs> a pedantic point that Data made in mm-hmm. the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Naked Now. When you see people blown out into space, it's really startling that the sound goes away and it's, it's lovely. It's a wonderful moment. I, now, Leonard Nimoy <laughs> did come back for this film and I am making a science point this is not just nerdery. Bear with me, Ashlyn. Leonard Nimoy came back for this film because he played old Spock, who had traveled back in time to basically mm-hmm. get us going on this, on this new parallel timeline. And w- there's a point where we see his home planet, Vulcan, collapse into a black hole. Now, he is on a different planet. I think it's called Delta Vega. He's on a different planet, and he watches in sadness as Vulcan sort of collapses into a black hole. And we see Vulcan in the sky, and it's like the size of our moon in our sky, roughly. Maybe even bigger. And when I saw that in the theater, I was thinking, how the hell close are these two planets? If they were, assuming they're sort of dense, rocky planets like they seem to be, and, you know, we know Vulcan is at any rate, and this is like a snowy planet, if they were close enough that you could see the one from the other, like the size of the moon... I can't imagine what the tidal forces would be like but that's if,
1: assuming that the planet you're talking about is a full-size planet. It still could have been a moon. We didn't actually get a size a sense of scale.
0: Right, the but movie. at least never, I didn't. There was never any indication that it was a moon. It was called another planet. Even if it were in the same system, which I don't think You know, it doesn't have any sort of similar naming convention. There's no... It would be doing the filmmakers a lot of credit to say it's a different planet in the Vulcan system. But even so, there's actually a a science blunder in this uh, film that sort of blows any other out of the water, I think. And that's ignoring the whole red matter thing. Red matter is basically this MacGuffin that... uh, is like a super dense material, but only when you want it to be for plot reasons. And it, uh, it you know, turns things into, like, black holes and like that. Mm-hmm. So we can ignore that. We can, we can grant that. I think Phil Plate in his review also said, you know, that's fine. You know, don't worry about it. Some exotic form of matter that is just a plot device. That's fine. But the thing that bothered me most is the entire reason that this whole plot got started and that Spock had to travel back in time was because... There was basically this like giant supernova that was threatening the galaxy. Hang Not, on. Yeah, it was the, it was the galaxy. Like Ro- Romulus was engulfed in it, and Remus, and then the galaxy, or something.
1: I thought it was just the the Romulan sector. Uh, they didn't. I don't think they said the galaxy, did they? Or did I miss that part? Because I'm pretty sure that it was, they were working with the Romulan government to create a time machine or something, some red matter ship to uh, stop the Nova from taking out the whole system, which had Remus and Romulus in it.
2: So I don't know. Jim is pretty encyclopedic. I'm going to back him on this one. Okay.
3: Well, Wikipedia just re- references Romulus was threatened by it. It doesn't say anything yeah. about Remus or a galaxy. Now, I can't say that I remember the movie very much, but that's what Wikipedia says. That's
1: there, there, a, there... Hell of a big nova.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I know. And actually, uh, I just cross checked this with, with Phil Plate. And uh, on his blog, he has, and I quote. In the scene where Spock explains the plot to the audience during a mind meld with Kirk, he says a supernova went off that, quote, threatened the galaxy, end quote. We see a giant yellow star explode and it destroys Romulus. So yeah, we know that Romulus was destroyed because that's why, you know, our uh, sort of antagonist goes back in time and Spock has to follow him. But from what I understand, basically, it was threatening the whole galaxy and they built this ship to fix it. But the problem was they couldn't fix it in time, and so Romulus got blown up. And then this guy had to take revenge because they saved the day, but they didn't save the day good enough.
1: Yeah, I'm also looking at the Wikipedia page, and I'm, I, think, I think what he meant, and we can read into it like we read into the, the Bible, is uh, threatening the galaxy, maybe they meant politically, uh, <laughs> instead of instead of uh, actually physically threatening the the galaxy, because I mean, uh, a whole bunch of homeless Romulans could have really upset the economic outlook of uh, the
0: Ferengi Empire. Sure the, the the one the one form of apologetics that I'll go in for is Star Trek apologetics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's worth noting uh, that <laughs> this. Entire film essentially sets us on an alternate timeline as I, as I said and the idea there is that the filmmakers want to sort of start fresh but they don't want fans to be really upset that they've basically erased every Star Trek ever and so they want this sort of blank slate as far as continuity is concerned they want to go back to like the Kirk Spock you know golden era of Star Trek And getting us on an alternate timeline by altering the past and sort of splitting off into an alternate timeline uh, solves that problem. But this brings up an interesting point, because the whole uh, purpose of... Does anyone remember the Temporal Prime Directive? Yes, I do. This is mentioned in several series. The whole purpose of that is to prevent people from messing with THE Timeline. Mm -hmm. And every Star Trek series, whenever they go back in time, which they do often, and even though it's a cheap trick, I actually always enjoy those episodes because I'm a child, um, whenever they go back in time, they talk about changing the past, and that's the time travel sort of uh, model that Star Trek has always used, as far as I can tell. They also use predestination paradoxes, so the past isn't really changed, even though they worry that it might be, but you understand. Right. This is not a series that uses the alternate but parallel timeline approach. So this means that this movie essentially erases all of Star Trek. Yes. Except, I will note, for Enterprise. Because, f*** you, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I did actually enjoy this movie. Uh, while there are plenty of continuity issues for Trekkies to complain about, there's also enough in-jokes to keep us mostly happy. Uh, you know, we have our red shirts getting killed, and we have our hilarious Kirk fight scenes, and Carl Urban, who plays McCoy, who also played Aylmer in the uh, Lord of the Rings films, he's fantastic. He's just great. There wasn't as much humanism or philosophy as you'd expect from a Star Trek film, but if I'm honest, Trek was usually pretty heavy-handed when it did that anyway. Uh, so while this film is no undiscovered country for me, uh, I am Ooh. thoroughly looking forward to the, uh, to the sequel, which is coming out, what, in May or something like that? Yeah,
1: really soon. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it, too. And
0: uh, I can't Anything wait. else on Star Trek or shall we move on?
3: I guess the one thing is, uh, at the very end, the older Spock and younger Spock encounter each other, which, again, is something that you're never supposed to do if you're in the single timeline. But more so, uh, the older Spock is encouraging the younger Spock to do what feels right instead of what is logical.
1: Which is what Spock sort of learned how to do in
0: his old age. Well, of. that's, that's right. a, uh, uh, his human side. Basically... Spock as a character, the entire purpose of Spock is to show how much better emotional thinking is than logical thinking. So I'm sort of not surprised, (laughs) uh, honestly. Yeah, (laughs) That's a good point, and it's annoying to see from Spock, but I think a lot of our criticisms that we're going to level at these films tonight is going to come down to what do you expect from Hollywood. You know, right. this is where at least I veer more toward the cynical side of skepticism. I know they're not going to throw us very many bones, so mm. I've sort of just got to be happy with the ones that I do get. And, and it's important,
1: as a skeptic, we can still lose ourselves in the in the fiction. We're not on all the time.
3: Oh, absolutely. Sort of like what Jen was saying, with a lot of Hollywood movies, we sort of know what the moral of the story is going to be regardless of what the story is, because there are a few accepted morals out there and every movie ends with those, whether or not it should, you sort of have to resign yourself to that fact in order to ever enjoy anything.
0: (laughs) And we'll come back to that when we talk about life of Pi. (laughs)
1: What do you think about rating these films on a scale of science? Sure. Why not? Okay. This gets a five centrifuges. (laughs) (laughs) Bias. <laughs> uh, while I didn't really appreciate rebooting the universe, because now we don't know what Picard is going to be doing, but uh, he's just he's just going to be working a vineyard his entire life. Well, exactly right. So maybe he does actually die from his chest wound. Uh, we don't. Oh, know. the
0: Nausicaan will will end up getting him after all. Yeah, we just not.
1: don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen. So I'm a little. I'm a little apprehensive about. The where where it's going to be going, but the new movie's coming out. It may may redeem itself. Uh, so yeah, five for me. You guys can I'm gonna go down.
2: one. One centrifuge. One <laughs> centrifuge a... for the space noise. Minus four for the red matter crap. <laughs> I'm not to, to willing be, to let that go.
1: To be fair, there was a giant centrifuge in this film. <laughs> There's a, there a person almost one trapped. centrifuge. <laughs> Just saying.
0: I think this is one of those areas where we have to sort of take what we can get. You know, the no. giant falcon in the sky of the other planet that we can somehow see, even though it's probably light years away, because they had to warp from the one to the other, and it's not getting sucked in. That that bugs me. You know, the red matter is sort of bugs me a little bit. The supernova threatening the galaxy or not, you know, that sort of bugs me a little bit. I don't, I don't know. I thought it was better than... We should reasonably expect from a sci-fi flick especially one that's like a mainstream summer blockbuster so yeah. I, I'm you know I'm gonna give it a two maybe the next one will be better I'm looking forward to it
1: this these the scale is just rating science I'd like to reiterate that not not the quality of the film
0: okay why do we move on source code is this sort of weird film I expected it to sort of be a travesty of science but it was not nearly as horrible as I expected it to be from the trailer it's it's hard to know what to expect Uh, you think maybe it's gonna be basically there's this disaster and then this army guy somehow goes back in time but he doesn't really go back in time he goes into a software simulation of the past that's somehow exactly accurate and then has to investigate what happened Um, but that's not really what it turns out to be uh, so basically there's this terrorist attack, and the main character, who is a military sort of gentleman, um, is tasked with uh, trying to figure out what happened, who planted this bomb on this train, so that uh, they can avert the next attack. So, so that's sort of the, the premise, and the main character also doesn't really know where he is or what's going on, because apparently when you get put into this source code thing, uh, it messes with your memory in some way. So the main character goes back in time, and I'm using air quotes here, which is great for a podcast, um, and takes the (laughs) place of someone else who was on the train and tries to investigate the disaster. And he has like, you know, seven minutes. minutes.
3: Eight minutes. Eight minutes.
0: To investigate uh, before the disaster happens and uh, try to figure out who was responsible so that they can then, in in the real world, uh, catch him.
1: What happens after eight
0: minutes uh, well, then then the bomb explodes, and then the character that he is like animating taking the mm-hmm. place of is killed so then he's got to do a different guy or
3: no, so how it works, and they don't exactly explain, they don't explain at all really mm-hmm. how this happens, but somehow they have access to the last eight minutes of one of the train passengers' lives mm-hmm. um. They basically and do a so- brain
0: scan on him and a brain scan on our main character and figure out that their brains are compatible, and then he, like, inserts the one brain into the other brain, and brain stuff happens. I, th- I think like that's I can- the, the technical like- explanation.
3: Yes, Jim, that's exactly it. No.
1: It's like an <laughs> analyst, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but this actually raises a lot of questions, right? Because if this is, like, a super accurate simulation of the past, um, how could... This guy actually investigate anything because if even grant let let's grant the premise that this train blows up and somehow this one passenger's brain is still okay and that they can scan it and figure out what it saw and like that and all of these things that are presented as sort of near future tech when in fact this is fantastically impossible. Let's grant all of that. You start wondering how uh, this main character could walk around the train and investigate things and see things that the actual guy in real life never saw. However, Mm -hmm. they sort of solved that problem, spoiler alert, by revealing that um, source code doesn't actually just simulate what this person saw. It actually sort of projects you into a different quantum universe. So you can investigate that universe, but I guess you assume that that universe is similar enough to this universe that the same guy planted the same bomb on the same train?
3: It's, um, it's all about parallel realities, alternate timelines. In fact, that's going to be a very common theme in the different movies that we're talking about tonight. Um, reading a few synopses, that's what it's all about. So every time he goes back or the source code is activated, he goes into a different parallel reality or alternate timeline. So that's how it works.
0: So I'd just like to take a moment to note that source code is the name of this, like, government secret project that has, like, mad scientists basically working for it. (laughs) Um, And that's confusing because source code actually has a fairly specific meaning and a fairly easy-to-understand meaning when it comes to, like, software systems, which is, in a sense, what we're talking about. (laughs) And it's not, that meaning isn't whatever the hell this is. Uh, So (laughs) that led to some gross misunderstandings on my part of what was going on. So at the end of the movie, spoiler alert again, we're not going to spoil a lot of things. We're just spoiling a couple little things. But at the end of the movie, this guy ends up staying in the body of this dude from the alternate universe that he was inhabiting to try to save the day. Um, Because not only does he catch the terrorist and sort of prevent him from blowing other stuff up in the real world, but he stops the bomb from going off uh, on the train in the first place in this parallel world Mm -hmm. uh, after dying like 80 times in a really sort of intense Groundhog Day-esque fashion. Um, (laughs) Great movie, by the way. Yeah, also a great movie. Very sort of existentialist, creepy movie. Um, But at the end of the movie, our main character ends up staying in the body of this dude in the alternate universe, which leads me to wonder, hey, this guy in the alternate universe isn't dead. But our main character, who uh, is apparently dead in the alternate universe, has taken over his body. So I'm I'm thinking, what the hell happened to the guy who was in that body before our main character jumped into it? Does maybe his consciousness swap? just get pushed out of the universe? Like, they, how is that fair? <laughs> Don't they swap, like, a,
1: a, an exchange, maybe? The consciousness of one guy goes into the other body, and they just sort of
0: change? and. Well, that would sort of suck, right? A- yeah, and yeah. I'm also left wondering... Let's assume he saves the day on a bunch of trains. We know that even when he doesn't save the day, because he does this a whole bunch of times, he doesn't save the day on a bunch of those trains, but he does get his body that he's using off of those trains. Right. So when he jumps back into like the real world uh, mm-hmm. or whatever, try, trying to get more information the next time around, what happens to that body in the parallel universe does it just drop dead because nobody's animating it anymore or does like the soul of the original guy reassert itself and say hey that was sort of weird
3: like what's yeah uh,
1: <laughs> then the 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 source code people of that universe take that body and go oh he's still alive so we're going to hook up the same guy <laughs> and it just—it's just—it's just like a, a host <laughs> of car, yeah. or it's like a stack of cards. that just keeps going and going and going. So there's hundreds it's of the source
0: codes all the way down. Main
1: character running around trying to save the universe. My question is, what happens when? So he finished. He saved the train. Every everybody's happy. Every you know, he gets the girl, saves the damsel in distress. What happens to all the rest of the universes that he hasn't saved yet? Do they just keep dying? Like, should oh, he continue to do this forever? Only in, if he's in a an good person all the time. Okay, okay.
0: But, but by the end of the movie, he's got the girl, so that's I mean, as much of a person as you need to be. Selfish, I think the theory
3: right? is that however many parallel realities there are, then, yes, the train would still blow up in all those other ones or whatever, unless, yeah, I, I, I'm i not sure. They sort of try to explain it, but then it leaves you with these
0: these types of questions.
1: Again, this is a moment where we actually sort of have to suspend our critical thinking skills and just go with it.
0: Well, there's also an issue when it comes to, like, civil liberties here, too, because we also discover that our main character is basically doing this against his will, and his his government and military command structure is forcing him to do this, even though he just wants to die.
3: Keep in Uh. mind, Gem, that he is a member of the military, and sometimes members of the military don't always get the same freedoms as other people, because... I understand
0: that, but (laughs) I will note... Spoiler alert, he is dead the whole time, but they're just keeping his corpse alive Frankenstein-style so that they can put him through this.
3: He's not dead, Jim. His consciousness is still alive.
0: <laughs> He's only He's super weird. <laughs> it's also worth noting that this movie basically seems to rely on like the dualist philosophy of mind, where your like soul or consciousness or whatever can be separated from your physical brain and everything just stays the same. And Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure everybody knows what I think of that idea. Deepak Deepak, Chopra
1: is happy about it.
3: Absolutely. I mean, one of my biggest problems with it, uh, aside from the things that we've talked about, is when it's revealed the state that his body is in, there's no way, there is no way that that body could keep a brain alive to have a consciousness that could be transferred. um, Spoiler alert, his body is basically a head... And half of a chest.
0: He looks like the Borg Queen. Oh. No, she's like out of her out of her body. With the spine dangly
1: and
3: basically, okay. it, it's basically imagine the chest ripped up, ripped in half about mid mid ribcage, and nothing oh. below it, and it's just sort of in this box. <laughs> that's, I guess, supposed, like, not a box, but uh, some sort of a chamber, but there's no ventilation tubes, there's no there's no medical type things that you would assume you would need to try to keep any part of a body alive or not gangrenous. Um, and so that was my biggest problem, that they would be able to get anything functioning with a body that had been damaged so badly.
1: So it's... He's essentially playing Christopher Pike from the Star Trek series, you know, rolling around yeah. in a cart with a little red light on his chest that beeps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <and> all that <laughs> yeah except, you can except see he's his head.
0: Yeah, except he's fully conscious the entire time uh, and f- like fully able to communicate um, with a beep. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you think what they can make starships, but they can't yeah. make something that beeps more than three times. I
0: know, like it, it's it's so funny looking but back it was a great at Christopher Pike. It's so completely absurd. Because I guess they had to kill kill off that character because, you know, he, he was being replaced with Kirk anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the original captain of the Enterprise, uh, for anyone who's not a Trekkie. Uh, but just the way they did it, it's like, it, it's exactly that. They had all this future technology, but the old, the way this guy could communicate was just with a, f- a blinking light.
1: And um, and, I re- and a little noise, but I really appreciated it. Uh, it was really simple and... I think it had a lot of power, that little blinking light. There was a lot of acting in that little blinking
0: light. <laughs> so what's the science rating on this one, guys? It has, it has different quantum dimensions and stuff like that. That's science-y, right?
3: Anything oh, yeah. with quantum in it means it's pure science. Pure
0: science.
1: Was there a centrifuge in this film?
0: <laughs> um, not that I <laughs> no. saw. There might have been one in one of the background scenes in one of the labs. Because you uh, know I, I doubt it
1: you know it 's science when there 's a centrifuge, mm-hmm. right
0: I would probably give this one and a half centrifuges yeah. I, I think that it 's a fine film uh, the the sort of dualism uh, and unexplained questions and like the the astral projection using the source code, whatever that is that that's, that sort of bugs me a little bit it 's an okay it 's an okay movie and it 's philosophically i guess sort of interesting but i i wouldn't really say it's sciencey i'd say one and a half yeah yeah the bottom line for me is that quantum leap was better when scott bacula was in it shall we move on to life of pie so apple or cherry <laughs> not, not that kind of pie robert <laughs> oh, what oh. about pumpkin pumpkin mm, pie oh,
3: pumpkin, pumpkin pie. yeah
0: yeah how <laughs> about uh, how about raspberry pie no pumpkin <laughs> the, the Raspberry Pi is also the name of a uh, of a very affordable, very small compact computer that you can get for 35 bucks basically. And a friend of mine just released the first public version of a Plex media client for the Raspberry Pi. So basically you can watch any film that you have on like a network share on your network. Any film or TV show or whatever that you happen to have and you own legally and have a copy of on your computer, Uh, you can watch it on your TV using just this tiny little box. You know, it's sort of like an Apple TV, except way better in every sense of the word. So I thought I'd just Mm, give uh, yeah, I thought I'd just give Dale a a shout out there. You can go to uh, Razplex.com, check it out. Okay, so Life of Pi. Uh, Laura, do you want to give us sort of a bit of a background on th- this uh, this story by Yann Martel? It was originally a book by a Canadian author, and it's now a gorgeous, if somewhat misguided, film.
3: Well, gorgeous it is. Um, so the story here is, uh, it, it's basically a middle-aged gentleman recounting the story of how during his, uh, his move on a uh, freight ship from India to Canada, how he was shipwrecked and somehow managed to survive and wash up on the shores of Mexico. It's not just that, though. It, it ends up being a very, very colorful and, and fantastical story involving this character being the only human survivor in a lifeboat, and he shares the lifeboat at the beginning with a zebra, an orangutan, a hyena, and a tiger. And, and the tiger's
0: name is Richard Parker, incidentally. Yes.
3: And shortly after the shipwreck it becomes just the human character and Richard Parker. And the <laughs> tale is all the about... the chain of
0: events that you are imagining. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. When you have a tiger on board, we, we kind of know what happens. And so it, it's very much all about how he devised ways to keep himself and the tiger fed and how they had territory struggles and how they learned to live with each other and the things that they encountered along the way, such as um, whales and dolphins and a very incredible floating island of what looks like mangrove trees that um, ends up being carnivorous and uh, then eventually how they part ways once... uh, they reach the shores of Mexico.
0: I just want it's a to totally know, I crazy Pat yeah. story. Oh it yeah. is. have you seen this film, Ashlyn, at all?
2: Or have you read the book? <laughs> I've read the book. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie. Okay. The movie is very oh. close to the
3: book. Yeah. I have okay. read I've read the book as well, so you can probably comment here.
0: <laughs> when I when I saw the the sort of floating like island, carnivorous island of mangroves, I was like, holy sh this movie was made by Answers in Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> floating vegetative mats that they propose uh, as the method for after Noah's flood, uh, the animals and plants got distributed around the various continents. Like, it looked exactly like that.
3: Now, when you read the book, I can't remember... I think somewhere at the beginning of the book, it says that the whole story is a work of fiction. And I seem to recall reading that. But yet, as I read it, and again, as I watched the movie... I wanted to believe that it was real. It was a really fun story, and I really enjoyed the way that it was told. Now, there's all sorts of problems with it scientifically in that, but it's, it's a fun story, and it's a fun ride, and you want it to be true.
2: I had a really good time reading it, um, except for the floating island thing. I just, after that, I just couldn't get behind it anymore.
3: You know what? That was my favorite part of the book, mostly because I thought it was such a fun idea. I knew that it could not possibly be true, but I wanted it to be true because how cool would that be?
0: Well, so, just, yeah. if, if, if I can just sort of move us back toward the the beginning of the of the film? Uh, I had some expectations about this movie because I, although I hadn't read the book, I was familiar with its sort of tone and the and. Uh, the message that it was trying to present, uh, I just want to note that very early on we 're presented with this character this this Pi his name is Pi or piscine uh, yes French word for pool um, and he is a Catholic Hindu muslim uh, and and as his childhood unfolds near the beginning of the movie, you basically see him converting to every single religion uh, because they all have something to offer. Uh, offer. Isn't this a nice little ecumenical love fest? Now, the film wasn't as bad as I sort of uh, had prepared myself for. I actually really did enjoy it. Um, The main character, Pi, has a wonderful rationalist father. uh, And when Pi begins converting to every religion under the sun, his father basically raises every objection that I wanted to raise. The film has a saccharine ecumenical... Feel that I think comes directly from the pages of the book, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, But to its credit, it doesn't set up Pi's father as, like, a rationalist straw man who's shown to be, like, wrong in the end about everything, which I think is a refreshing change from the Hollywood norm. Although the sort of moral of the story is not really in line with the the rationalist angle that the father is presenting, I really did think that the filmmakers uh, did themselves... uh, a good turn by actually sort of presenting that strong skeptical character because i actually really appreciated that
3: yeah the the father he was a good person as well as yes. being the logical the skeptic the atheist
0: he was, he was still a very- supportive parent and pi yeah and pi cared about him and appreciated what his father taught him even though he ended up sort of taking a slightly different path. I do believe that the moral of the story is supposed to be something along the lines of, believe whatever you want, because life is better that way. Uh, I think that we can all agree that that's a pretty stupid moral, and a fairly dangerous abdication of personal responsibility, in my opinion. But it's also pretty much par for the course, as far as morals of the story goes, Mm -hmm. right? But... After the carnivorous sort of floating island scene, I was sort of in the same boat as you were, Ashlyn, when you were reading the book, where I'm like, I just, this is too much. This is too, I can no longer suspend my disbelief.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was super out there. And also the, I remember the scene in the book, I don't know, it just didn't grab me as much. It was more boring to me.
0: One of the things that um, that pretty much made the whole film worthwhile for me, I think that it perfectly sort of makes the story digestible and appropriate for both skeptical and sort of woo-woo audiences is the sort of coda at the end of the story where uh, basically Pi is is finished his, his tale when he gets washed up on Mexico, and the guy he's telling his story to says, wow, that's sort of hard to believe. And Pi has claimed that this tale will make him believe in God, uh, which uh, is enough to get I think anyone's backup at the beginning, but the guy says, "Well, that's 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 amazing. That's quite an incredible story." And then he goes back into the story briefly and talks about being interrogated by some Japanese. Uh, it was the
3: insurance company of the boat for the boat that sank. They wanted right. to know the story of what happened. They want to figure the out why. It,
0: yeah, they wanted to figure out why it happened and how he was the only survivor. And you see him telling them his story. They do not believe him at all. And so you then see this older pie tell the person to whom he's recounting the story. So then I told them another story. And he basically provides, uh, and uh, I won't spoil it, but this is sort of a... This is a spoiler, even though I'm not spoiling the details. He provides an account of what clearly actually happened that is a horrible horrible painful ordeal and it it becomes clear to the audience that pie has invented this whole tale of being trapped on the boat with this tiger as a way of coping with these horrible things that he had to witness when he was on that lifeboat
2: hmm. uh,
0: his fantastical adventures are just a, a pleasant fantasy then at the end of the film, uh, he gives these these two characters, and by extension the audience members, the choice of believing either this wonderful adventure tale or this dreadful reality. And you can tell that the filmmakers and the people responsible for the story are sort of trying to push you in the one direction. They're saying, hey, let people have their pleasant fantasies because, you know, they need to be able to live with with what they've experienced. And... I'm not sure that I can really fault them all that much for that. No. But regardless of which way the cards happen to fall for you, I think that having that moment at the end made the the film more than acceptable. It made it actually rather nice for people who are on sort of either side of the aisle. You know, I always get annoyed with people who who say, well, why do you always have to talk about how God doesn't exist or whatever? Let people have their pleasant fantasy. Why do you always have to talk about how psychics, you know, aren't really talking to the dead? You know, let people have their pleasant fantasy. We can argue about whether these things are harmful or not, but at the end of the day, I'm just in the position of, hey, let's try to figure out what's actually going on because the world is pretty awesome. This film sort of lets me have that while at the same time letting the other people have that other thing that they like.
2: <laughs> very eloquent.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that part at the end was very, was very good. I can't remember if it was in the book or not, but it was nice. I guess I wouldn't call it a, a fantasy so much as telling it another way, especially considering the mental anguish that he would be going through, but I did really like that part at the end as well. The, uh, with the, the, second, the second story basically.
0: I also like the fact that the, uh, the very famous uh, French actor, mm-hmm. Gérard Depardieu who was basically an extra in the film, he had like two lines actually had a much larger part in the film in the story that he tells at the end that you never actually see than he did in the film itself. That was actually really funny.
1: <laughs> so so I was looking at uh, carnivorous vegetation floating in the water, and I didn't realize you meant carnivorous. I'm thinking pine trees floating around, and I'm going, <laughs> i far-fetched about that. That's all right. Uh, but I did find a, there's a lake in India, Laktak Lake, uh, I apologize if I mispronounced that, that has floating uh, islands of vegetation that actually um, have a several species living on these floating islands, uh, endangered sange, brown antler deer, on, on these islands. Roaming around... Oh yeah, I mean, it's totally a thing even in
2: Canada, like swamps. A lot of the time there's lots of moss that just floating around supporting vegetation and life.
3: One of the things about this particular floating island, though, was that, first of all, it was like a mangrove forest out there. Second of all, it had this pool of waters, I'm not sure if it was in the middle of it or where it was, but during the day this plant mass had the ability to turn this pool of water that it surrounded into fresh water, even though it was floating in the salt water ocean. But at night this plant mass turned it into a pool of acid. So any fish that came up from the ocean would then be killed and digested by the plant mass I don't um, know why fish night.
0: living in the ocean would be attracted by fresh water because wouldn't well, they just and that's exactly die?
3: it. And then, how does the fresh water <laughs> stay fresh in this in this pool if there's salt water underneath?
0: It's it's fresh salt water, Laura. I think you misunderstood it. Oh, yeah.
3: I freshly get it. freshly made. My bad. Sorry.
0: This, this is this is
1: great. I'm gonna go <laughs> watch this movie right now. It's got a Carnivorous Island. That is great. <laughs>
0: It, it is nah. actually enjoyable, and it, it. Although we we did not see it in three D, you could tell it was made for three D. But it was a it was a gorgeous film. It was you know, it, it was, was very, very beautiful. It was very very lovely.
2: This has nothing to do with science, but did they put in the cookie thing at the end where he was like
0: hoarding cookies?
3: No, he was a very put together kind of guy. Oh, I like that
0: part. <laughs> Ratings time. How many centrifuges?
3: Life of Pi. Two and a half. Like I guess totally middle of the road. It because it definitely had its issues, but. It also had the redeeming qualities of having a a logical uh rational character who's also a very good person and played an integral role in the main character's life and with the bit at the end about this the second story it gave I us think it that out. was a really really nice addition to it, so I'll say middle of the road mostly a little bit lower because it's not a really sciencey movie and as cool as I think that island is, it's completely implausible.
2: Seems reasonable. I might go three just because we do have that extra explanation at the end and, like, this is what actually happened, but Fair. this is a cool story. hmm
0: yeah, yeah, I could get on board with that, Al- although I think that the intentions of the filmmaker sort of lean in, lean in sort of an anti-science direction. Uh, I, I, I agree with that. So, so yeah, let's, let's do three. It's really important that we get these ratings right, people. (laughs) Okay, so why don't we move on to Wreck-It Ralph. We're just going to talk about this one really quickly, because there's not a whole lot of science uh, to dissect. Uh, You know, we could be curmudgeons. Maybe we will be. So Wreck-It Ralph is this film that came out recently. It's it's nominally a children's film, but it has a whole lot of stuff for adults in it, sort of in the spirit of Shrek. And it features uh, basically the main character is like a Donkey Kong esque uh, villain in a video game, and he gets sick of everybody hating him because he's the villain, even though he's just doing his job. Yeah, uh, nice so guy. he you know goes to a, a villain support group, and you see like Bowser and Zangief from Street Fighter sitting in these in these chairs and drinking you know bad coffee and and like that, and it's really funny. It's a film where basically. This guy is not satisfied with his lot in life, and so he tries to go out and adventure and improve things, and meets people along the way, and blah blah blah. Everything turns out nice in the end, and uh, mm-hmm. as my friend Jordy says, the moral is be yourself, which is the moral <laughs> of every film, right? Particularly
3: kids' <laughs> movies.
0: Yeah, and there were. Uh, I really enjoyed this film because I thought it had, as far as like morals go, it had some just fine, like, moral teachings for kids. It had a lot of awesome in-jokes for anybody who's played video games uh, in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. You know, Q-Bert shows up. In terms of actual science, you know, like, there's the fact that video game characters aren't actually people, and they can't travel through electrical wires... Yeah, and, that's you know, a your, your important thing. Your power bar that you have all of the video games plugged into isn't actually like a subway station where yeah. everybody can meet up after their game gets turned off. You know, stuff like that. Uh, but <laughs> all of that aside, it, I thought it was a really fun film that has a lot of great stuff for kids, and it also has a lot of awesome, fun things for adults to appreciate. And it's a bit of a nostalgia fest.
2: Uh, one of the things that was pointed out to me—I haven't seen it, and I still want to see it—but a friend of mine said that the player character is actually a girl, and so it's a girl playing this video game throughout the movie. And I thought that was really cool.
0: Yep. Yeah. The the character that basically she's she's sort of Ralph's sidekick in a way. She's sort of a player character, but she she is a main character, and she's a good character. She's a good sort of female protagonist, which is yeah. nice. Spoiler alert she turns out to, like, be a princess at the end, but then she decides she doesn't want to be a princess because princesses are sort of lame or whatever, and so she is just the president instead. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's sort of funny, and, you know, yeah, you know, we've got enough princesses. Uh, she wants to be a, you know, a, a democratically elected... Wait a second. She just declared I, herself president.
1: <laughs> I think what Ashlyn was... I, correct me awesome. but what what you but what you're referring to is the human characters who are actually playing the games is is a female in in the movie?
2: Yeah, that's what um, that's the impression that I got, and it's just as I think it would be, would have been really easy and not super noticed if it was a guy, right? Well, but,
0: young You know, boy let's have it be a girl it. instead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see a couple yeah. of different player characters.
3: Also, speaking of uh, female, but I
0: like that she declared herself president too. It's
2: kind of awesome.
3: One of the types of games, and one of the characters featured is um, one of the Halo-type games, you know, soldiers fighting aliens-type games, and mm-hmm. the character from that video game that joins wreck Ralph in his quest and, and whatnot um, is actually a woman, too, and she's very strong and tough, she's the leader of the army platoon in this game, and she's not scantily clad and she's um, hypersexualized yeah. yeah she's not hypersexualized you know she's she's tall and and strong looking but that's what you expect from any character from that type of game um and that's kind of interesting too because it's very rare that you see a game like that that would have a character like that
0: and she's played by Jane Lynch which is just um, amazing anyway mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the the and the acting in this film is great. Like the everybody does a fantastic job. The guy who played Wash in Firefly is like the main uh, antagonist. You know, like just yeah. the casting is is fantastic. I just I really enjoyed it. And the end credit sequence has a whole bunch of video game montages. Uh ah, it's just great. <laughs> Um, I, there was a little bit of, I guess, computer science-y stuff in there, you know, about the innards of video games. And while there aren't, in fact, homunculi walking about animating these characters for reals, um, I, it was it was fine, and it actually uh, showed it showcased a bunch of things that are actually real things. Like there was a yeah. there was a scene that I sh- should have mentioned earlier where they had like sort of old. Uh, old code that was never finished for a, for a couple of different levels in one of the games that they sort of broke into and fooled around in. And that's something that's real and that exists in lots and lots of games. Knights of the Old Republic 2 is like the classic example of this, but this happens all over the place, where they will be rushing a game to market and they're like, we can't finish these levels, we just won't finish them. But they'll get left in, so they're still in the game. And if you go in there and you tinker with the code, you can actually reactivate and some people actually finish these levels and can add a whole bunch of content to the game. Hackers did that for Knights of the Old Republic 2 and it was also done for Planescape Torment, one of the greatest games of all time. So that was pretty cool. So from a computer science perspective, I would give it probably four matrices out of five.
1: Four mm. matrices.
2: Oh, Again, okay. with the changing scales. Well, I mean, we're
0: talking oh, computer, science, computer science, here, science here, not real science. This is computer science, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fine. Okay, so why don't we talk about Contagion? Ashlyn? <laughs>
2: awesome. So this was a movie that I saw recently. And it was one that I kept meaning to see in theaters or find it and watch it, and I kept forgetting. But I finally got to run to watching it like a month ago. And I was actually really impressed. Um, one of the more interesting points to me, uh, I guess I should sort of explain the movie a little bit. Towards the beginning of the movie, you see a woman get sick with this um, really contagious disease. And she comes home and infects her family and infects... Um, she's fl- flying from Hong Kong... Uh, through Chicago to Minneapolis. And so, of course, Chicago and Minneapolis are two enormous airplane hubs. And it ends up getting all over the world, killing lots and lots and lots of people. And throughout the movie, you're sort of watching them try and develop a vaccine and distribute this vaccine and get as many people as possible inoculated and basically trying to mitigate the effects of this disease. And there's looting and all kinds of you know craziness happening because... All these people are dying. I think the death toll was something like 26 million. But anyway, there's a lot of really good science in it. They um, explain the way that viruses are transmitted really well. They show that vaccines aren't created in an hour. You know, It takes them a long time and a lot of tries to figure this out. Um, something that I totally missed and that Rochelle just pointed out was that when, they're, when they actually say, you know, here's a virus and they're, they're showing a virus on the screen, What they're actually showing is a folded protein, which is really embarrassing, (laughs) and I don't know how they got away with that. Um, Something that's probably of interest to skeptics, though, is that they showed sort of a parallel to the anti-vaccine movement, where this one guy Mm -hmm. who is sort of semi-based on the Kevin Trudeau, the things they don't want you to know about guy. um, What a dick. He is, yeah, he's a huge dick. And he comes up with this cure, again, air quotes on a podcast, that is supposed to prevent you from getting this disease and makes a huge amount of money off of selling this and telling people not to get the vaccine. And the vaccine is going to harm them and writes a blog. And so there's this whole faction on the video that's um, fighting against this as well while they're trying to get the vaccine out and get everybody uh, inoculated so that people stop dying all over the place. But it was really well done that this guy, I mean, he was portrayed as a scumbag. Mm -hmm. That was my favorite part. Uh,
0: One of the the things that I appreciated most about uh, about the film is that it it didn't suffer from the safe mode uh, syndrome, which uh, basically every television especially, but also film, suffers from, unless you're watching something by Joss Whedon, uh, and instead Mm -hmm. goes the anyone can die route, uh, because that makes it extra scary and extra real. Right? Mm-hmm. Because nobody... Everybody's the main character of their own story, and everybody sort of... I mean, in, in some senses, feels like they're not going to be the one who, you know, is killed by, you know, H1N1 or whatever. I remember we were in Singapore when that outbreak happened, and it was creepy as, as all hell. Um, but that that's really cool, because it really hammers home how no one is safe from these sorts of things, so we'd better get our shit in gear and make sure that people get vaccinated for, for stuff. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure.
0: I always like the anyone can die uh, trope anyway.
2: And they had uh, sort of a huge all-star cast, so even though you had all these big names, you were aware that some of them were going to die because they couldn't all make it through the film, right? Right. I'd go, like, four and a half centrifuges. It was pretty awesome. And even, like, before Rochelle pointed out the virus protein thing, I thought it was... um, I didn't really have any issues with it at all.
3: Agreed. They did a good job of, of trying to be realistic, and they still had a good story and good suspense and all of that to go along with it. They didn't have to make up something crazy and fantastical to still get a really good story and a good movie out of it. And for that, I think it deserves, yeah, four four to five. So I think four and a half is fair.
1: I think Rochelle would agree with you. It was the
0: protein thing that made her lose <laughs> that, that half. Point. It lost that half a point. Yeah. yeah. So who here has seen the lost skeleton sure. of Cadavra aside from Laura, who I made watch it, and me, who watched it? Yeah, no. <laughs> We'll just touch on this really briefly because it's like maybe one of my favorite films ever. And it is just, it's is—it's amazing. It's a modern B-movie. It was made 10 years ago or so. And it is awesome and intentionally horrible in a very sort of tongue-in-cheek way. You know, if you're a fan of old like B-movies like Plan 9 from Outer Space or any of the...
2: They stole Hitler's brain.
0: Yeah. Basically any, uh, any film, any sort of pulp sci-fi film made between 1940 and 1960 if you're a fan of any of those for those like it's so bad it's good reasons you need to watch this film because it just it's a send-up of all of those tropes and my favorite parts were that the main character is like a scientist but he's he's not a scientist he is a scientist again in air quotes he's like a a, a science fiction scientist and he's the scientist that everybody thinks of when they think of a scientist in sort of television and film land so at one point he is uh... <laughs> He, he he's on his way off to this sort of uh, this wilderness area in in a park, and he meets uh, a park ranger, and the ranger and I'm just going to quote here. The ranger says, "Oh, say, you don't believe those old legends about the lost skeleton of Cadavra, do you?" <laughs> and the main character replies, "Ranger Brad, I'm a scientist. I don't believe in anything." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's there's another line. Um, where he's just talking about he he it's a send-up of the of the idea that scientists like can't appreciate things like love because you know it's not quantifiable. Uh so he Dr. Armstrong the main character says, as a scientist, I just wish I could appreciate more things like cabins and bicycles. Awesome. <laughs> you know, at the end of the film after they like track down the aliens, uh he says from now on, I'll stick to science and leave the hunting alien mutants to the experts. When <laughs> he says that, I just think of like people like bumbling around on you know TLC or the Discovery Channel looking for ghosts. <laughs> Those are the experts.
1: I'm getting electricity readings yeah. right next to the plug.
0: So, so if you like B movies, or if you are really annoyed by the way science is portrayed in in popular media, uh, as we sometimes are, it was very. Uh, it it was awesome because it was lampooning all of those sort of really stupid things about the way science scientists are portrayed. Uh, Laura, you saw this one. What do you what do you think on the uh, on the science scale?
3: There was no science at all. However, I will give it a two because it still beats Prometheus. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good point. I think that that uh, the lost souls <laughs> and the cadavra. For all for all of the fact that it was trying to portray science as, uh, as, like, this hilarious, completely different thing that science is in the films, and it was trying to send that up, I think it still does beat Prometheus on the science scale. So, yes, we'll give it two centrifuges.
1: Prometheus, is our, Prometheus is our lowest benchmark.
0: Why don't we uh, quickly talk about Looper, then finish off with uh, a cathartic discussion of Prometheus. No. <laughs> So Looper really quickly is a film that came out recently. It's another time travel flick. Um time travel flicks are awesome. As I mentioned earlier, I'm uh, I just love time travel movies. I just find them really sort of philosophically interesting.
1: It is a movie about <laughs> time travel that really messes up your mind, I think. Uh, I
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 like it's not it, it's not as bad for any of you who have seen Primer. It's not as crazy as Primer because Primer you need to watch like three times, paying attention the whole time, and you still won't quite get it. But for Primer, anyone, awesome time travel film.
3: Yeah, for anyone who's a concrete thinker like myself, very hard to wrap your head around it. Um, and Primer is just impossible. Uh, so all of you abstract thinkers, enjoy.
0: <laughs> but Looper, I found I found quite easy to follow. I thought it had really good uh, acting. I thought it had awesome time travel.
1: I think what made it easy to follow is it didn't jump from one timeline to the other on a regular basis. It stayed in one time. And then it had a little bit of future stuff as things were getting explained at the end. And then it brought it right back into the present, quote-unquote, present day. And finished off there, so it thought, really wasn't wibbly wobbly. It was more linear in that regard.
0: Uh, I thought that Bruce Willis. I I I'm a sucker for Bruce Willis. I uh, I think he is great. Uh, I yeah. am, I've sort of got like a like a man crush on him, even though he you know is a bit of a, a bit of a prick in real life. Apparently, uh, I also really like Joseph Gordon Levitt. Because he seems like a pretty awesome dude, and also I just think his acting is great, and his impression of Bruce Willis—because spoiler alert—Bruce Willis is an you know him from the future—is mm-hmm. uh, really spot on, and I just I thought that was great. I thought they did some really cool stuff where um, you see you see people being affected by things that are happening to them in the past, but they're happening to them in the past right now. And so you see them, like, they like, tattoos appearing on people, uh, like, as you watch, because they, now they were tattooed in the past, but now it's now, so you can now see the tattoo that was put there in the past. Hey, but no in, the, in the now past, not in the past past. Uh, uh, it's, 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 oh. it's lovely and fantastic. Um, uh, of course, it's Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson is a great director. He also did Brick, which uh, also starred Jason Hard Levitt, and yeah. I also really liked I did, however, think this film could have been better. Okay. And how?
3: How is that, Jem? Tell mm-hmm. us about it.
0: Uh, I think they could have left out the some spontaneous mutation occurred which allowed people to have telekinesis.
3: Yes. Ah, yeah. That like, was completely unnecessary to me. I really, really liked the film mm-hmm. um, for a, a lot of reasons, and I felt that you wouldn't have lost anything if... That part of it wasn't in there, okay but
0: then they, how do you explain the kid at the end yeah um, you would have had right, to have a different spoiler, spoiler. for right. the, for the like a different yeah. plot device to get everything going but you could have had the rainmaker be something else or just a really badass dude or well, it actually turns a out ninja to be guy or a whatever
1: ninja. come on ninjas
3: ninja no sure. Ninja Whatever. You could have made it
0: be Arnold Schwarzenegger as a sexy naked robot. You know, I I don't don't care. It could have been something. (laughs) I destroyed the gangs.
3: Yeah, it's just, it didn't... Yes, they would have had to have a different device, but any other device would have been better, and it would have just helped the film stay at a little bit of a higher level. I felt adding the telekinesis in there was just a little, eh. Really, it had to be that? It couldn't have been anything else?
0: at the same time like they d- they did have sort of some pretty awesome time travel plot points like they, as far as the time travel goes it hit everything that i want to see in a time travel film including the ending which we won't spoil here but it's just it's just it's sort of executed really well but yeah i thought that you know you could have made it sort of more realistic um, I guess, using air quotes again on a podcast, i got to stop doing that. Uh, if they'd cut out the telekinesis, because I thought that was sort of unnecessary, they should have used a different plot point. But other than that, I just thought it was just really, really a lot of fun and great.
1: I agreed. I thought it was a great movie. Uh, I think everybody should go watch it. It was a fun popcorn flick. Yeah, we both, uh, Rochelle and I, both enjoyed uh, seeing it in theaters. And we'd probably see it again in Blu-ray. And I'm not in any way working for the studio. <laughs> I didn't see a lot of science in it, so I'd give it a three.
3: Yeah. Yeah, middle all the road. I'm going to go for a ha- three as well.
1: And telekinesis thing sort of, yeah, was wasn't really
0: necessary. It was yeah. caused by a mutation, though. That's science right? Yeah. Yeah, so three. Yeah, I'd give it a like a two or a three, but good flick. Three three pipettes. <laughs> three, three pipettes.
3: <laughs> we can't yeah. change the scale now, guys. Come on.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, so... This is the one that maybe you've all been waiting for? Prometheus. have all been
3: trying to forget, you mean. Yeah. So,
0: so I don't think we'll spend a lot of time on this, probably, because it got talked about a lot when it came out um, mm-hmm. last year. Uh, this is... Prometheus was sort of a pseudo-prequel to Alien. Uh, it was done by Ridley Scott, who I l- like... As a, as a mm-hmm. director, you know, I yeah. love Blade Runner. I really liked Kingdom of Heaven. You, you know, like, I was expecting something amazing. And I think that that's the main reason that I was so disappointed in Prometheus because <laughs> I was, my expectations were so high. It looks amazing. It, when, you're, when you're looking at the trailer, you're like, holy crap, this looks awesome. Yeah. However, it was not... <laughs> and that's all the time we have for today, folks. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to just have this be the Jim rants about movies show. So, uh, although maybe it's a little late for that, what did you guys <laughs> think of this film? You talk for well, a while.
1: Well, I, I gotta say, Jim, you did come back from the theater with such a sour disposition that I did not go see this film. I actually avoided it like the plague because I just didn't want that face. <laughs> when I go to the next meeting of uh, drinking skeptically.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the Facebook thread that you guys started was amazing, though. Let's yeah, talk about was the abortion Brenda, machine. Right? That's what I want to talk about.
3: <laughs> the abortion machine, yes. Okay, go for it.
2: Um, I haven't actually seen the movie, but I hear that there was this like magical medical device that you could get in and it would fix you. Uh, but it wasn't programmed to perform abortions,
0: so she, I don't know. She had to like see. I don't. I don't know the details. She programmed it for like, hey, I've got a parasitic infection. Yeah, it's in and the uterus. Yeah, well, the problem <laughs> it, it like was... sliced
2: her open, and then yeah, she she, she was infected together. with
0: an alien baby for reasons never adequately explained. <laughs> because why give that to the audience? Um... <laughs> and so, so basically, what had to happen is she had to get it out, and they have this fantastic, like, medical bot, except it won't perform abortions, because I guess it's pro-life or something. Um, <laughs> no,
3: Jem, no, it won't. It can't perform an abortion, because it was built for a man, and Spoiler men can't word. have abortions. Seriously, this is the logic of the film, <laughs> of this machine. It was right, built because... only for a male body, so... How can <laughs> we do an abortion?
0: If, because it if, makes perfect sense that uh, when you program a medical robot, you would make sure that it can only serve one biological sex, but not yeah. the other.
1: i got to correct you there. If Arnold Schwarzenegger can have a baby, then... <laughs> okay, we're pulling Junior into this. Awesome.
3: Oh, good. Uh, okay, Let's
1: talk so... about the
3: science
0: of Junior. <laughs> so what happens is our main character sort of stumbles into this abortion machine... And says, "Hey, I've got this this uh, this parasitic infection in my uterus. Please have it removed." So it like slices her open with lasers, pulls out this alien thing, tries to kill it as much as possible. It's like an alien fetus baby. A fetus baby. Yeah, tries tries to like sterilize <laughs> it or something while it's trying to claw at her, and uh, uh, then it. It doesn't suture her back up. Like, this is just cut through, like, layers of abdominal tissue and muscle and uterine wall. It, it like, staples her up with, like, a staple gun and then sprays some sterilizing gel on her. And two <laughs> minutes later, she's running around. Like, just literally, like, oh, yeah. running around. Now, she winces a bit, so I guess that makes it okay in yeah. scientific. I just um, want
2: to note that I just got a text from Lauren who's downstairs saying abortion machine <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, that's obamacare like, at work it's like the suicide booth of Futurama you just go yeah. in there and insert your quarter and exactly. figure out how you want to do it
2: yeah so like this is like the far future ish i guess. and we still don't have we have this magic medical machine but it won't like stitch you up after. That's the best you can get is like stapled back together.
1: Yeah. No, it won't work on women. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just well, fifty percent of the population doesn't need medical medical uh, services. No, jeez, not at all. The
0: the thing that I found probably most offensive about this film wasn't the fact that they repeatedly referred to evolution as Darwinism because what was it this was financed by the Discovery Institute or something? Yes. Uh, that uh, and the floating
2: and, island, uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that that term, no, no, that's answers in Genesis. Uh, <laughs> the term Darwinism is is enough to make me lose respect for anyone involved with approving the script. But there's this whole scene where basically, it's the big reveal that they're on this ship looking for like the origins of mankind, mankind, you know, humankind, and a bunch of people who are scientists or something say, so what? You're just going to throw out like centuries of Darwinism. By which they mean to say, "Hey, there's a bunch of evidence for this thing called evolution. Would you like to present some counter evidence for your uh, hypothesis?" And the response is just, "Well, that's what I choose to believe, and that's enough. That's so, enough to finance a multi-trillion-dollar-like space expedition." This, <laughs> this movie evolution is probably false.
1: This movie was written by a misogynistic creationist. <laughs> <laughs> is that how that
0: works? I, 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 I would definitely not uh, go that far. Although, although it is sort of like pants on head idiotic. Eric Van okay. Daniken had some idea what he's talking about. <laughs> you know, like it's very what? He, Eric Van uh is the guy who wrote *Chariots of the Gods*. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Um
0: And he basically is—it's the whole ancient astronaut aliens like helped out in human history and stuff. yeah. Oh. And basically, this film sort of endorses that idea in this fictional universe. Um, But honestly, this wasn't the worst part. Like, all of that sort of creationist apologia aside, and all of the bad science aside, the worst part was how tremendously hackneyed the writing was. It was just, like, the dialogue was trite the characters were doing things without any apparent motivation, aside from the fact that the author needed to get them to the place where they would be killed later. Um, there were like the, all of the twists were cheap, and you could see them coming 45 minutes away. Then at the end, even with all of that cheap, hackneyed writing, uh, all of the cliches, they didn't manage to make the plot make any freaking sense. <laughs> like, it didn't come together in the end in any in any way that was convincing or inspired. And then, right at the end, you have Numi Rapace running away from a rolling spaceship. Like, it is rolling on its edge toward her, and she is running directly away from it for, like, a good 20 seconds. And she, like, stumbles and falls, and oh my god, she's gonna get crushed. When she could have spent two seconds dodging to the side and she would have been fine. Like, that literally happens. This is cartoon bad, you know? Oh, wow. wow.
3: Yeah. Yeah, wow. that was the worst part of the entire movie, I think. It's just... Wow. Any, any schoolchild gets that when, you know, a hula hoop is rolling towards you, if you move to the side, it won't hit you.
0: Yeah, don't just run away from it. <laughs> um, but there's lots of, like, really horrible science, too. I mean, like, the... We're here to talk about the science, not the horrible, horrible writing. There are things like when uh, when Shaw is uh, uh, looking at a sample of alien tissue and then comparing it to a sample of human DNA. She says it's a one hundred percent match. <laughs> so the alien is like your twin. <laughs> like what? <laughs> Keep in mind that um, the human is a human. <laughs> And the alien is like an eight-foot-tall, translucent bodybuilder with anger management issues. Okay? Oops. They obviously bear superficial resemblances to each other, but Robert and I don't have the same DNA. You
1: well, know, it's I, completely absurd. We could look at each other and have, like, very similar DNA, but you are still translucent, Jim, so... Oh, that's true.
0: <laughs> that is true. So it works! Great! Science win. Yeah, there's also like the, the the obvious things that have been pointed out by everyone who ever saw the film. Uh, the the like star map that uh, that leads them to this uh, this planet where they end up all getting massacred is uh, it's, it's just a series of five dots with a tall dude pointing at them, and it's a pictograph that's found throughout the world. Blah blah blah. So. Um, then they, then they, you know, fast forward into the future where they're on the ship and they arrive at the only galactic configuration that matches the map, which doesn't make any freaking sense. Because first of all, if this map were really old, stars have probably, you know, moved around because they're not stationary, yeah. stuck in a freaking firmament. Of course they are. Uh, uh, and keep in mind that although you may say, well, this is, you know, only a couple. Tens of thousands of years ago, that this that this happens. But keep in mind that uh, these stars are very far away, and light takes time to travel. So they're awesome. not e- even at the time where this map is recorded. They're not in that position anymore. Yeah. Uh, um, second of all, galactic configuration. I don't even know what that means. Uh, third, there it's a pattern of five dots, and literally there is only one place in the entire known universe that you could, like, find that pattern of five dots?
1: I know the answer to this. Stellar cartography on the Enterprise. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yeah, that, that's uh, great. They could just line them up. Yeah, perfect. Yeah.
0: Also, mm-hmm. it's never quite explained why the alien's star map that they're, like, benevolently pointing to ends up leading to, like, an alien bioterrorism facility. Spoiler alert, I guess.
3: One other thing about the the star the star configuration, they said that it's found all over the world. Well, if it's found in the different hemispheres, that's a problem because there's different star patterns in the different hemispheres. Oops. So what you know? How could it all be the exact same five star galactic configuration, whatever it is? Because well, it's not, it's not, not, not
0: viewable from those hemispheres, but the aliens knew it was there. So or right,
3: but something. all the pictures showed. Aliens showing, pointing to the sky, to the people below, so... Yeah, and, and and the
0: pictographs were clearly drawn by, you know, primitive humans, because, you know, primitive humans suck at drawing. Getting back to why the aliens apparently directed us to, like, a bioterrorism facility, So so the aliens that we see, they're called the engineers, and they're like these big translucent humanoids, and uh, they apparently created the aliens from the Alien film as, like, a biological weapon, weapon. And the star map leads to their, like, weapons depot or something. So the aliens are trying to kill us. Uh, but that's, that's sort of fair because when we eventually meet one of these engineers in person, uh, they hate us and try to kill us. Ridley Scott, that's never explained. That's never explained in the film. That we just oh, assume, yeah, everybody in the universe wants to f- kill us. Um, oh, yeah. Ridley Scott revealed in an interview that the reason the engineers hate us is because we once killed Space Jesus.
3: What? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so the engineers like created us by seeding by seeding the planet with our. I'm not. I'm not kidding, guys. The engineers <laughs> created us by seeding the planet with our DNA, uh, with with their DNA, which is our DNA, which doesn't make any sense because. Our DNA is clearly closely related to the DNA of everything on the planet. And this is a problem that Star Trek The Next Generation had, too, when they basically did the exact same storyline. The engineers seeded our planet with their DNA so humans would evolve, which doesn't make any sense if you accept anything about selection in evolution. Also, where the hell did the rest of the biosphere come from? But whatever. So engineers created humans, sort of. But they hate us. But we were misbehaving, so they sent us Jesus, who was supposed to, like, teach us how to follow commandments or something, I guess, of the engineers, so Yahweh's a translucent dude. Yeah. Um, but then we killed him, so they're mad at us. Yeah. But then these cave paintings clearly predate Jesus, so I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the hell's going on in this movie, people. I, I give up. I'm, I'm out. he
3: does.
0: I don't know what's going on.
1: We killed Space Jesus. You know you know why they're really mad at us? Because they saw that film. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, they they saw how they would be portrayed in Ridley Scott's adaptation of the true story. And,
1: and then they went back in time, made the movie again. It's just, it's wibbly wobbly, it's timey-wimey. It hurts your brain
0: to think about it. Uh, was that Doctor Who reference just for Rochelle's benefit, or are you also a fan?
1: I am also a fan. However, <laughs> Rochelle would get a kick out of it,
0: too. Yeah, good. Anything else that anyone wants to say about this travesty of a film?
3: Don't don't spend money on it. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't spend money on it. Learn from I, their I, mistake.
0: Yeah, yes. I I saw uh, we were going to see it because I was super excited. We saw it. Brendan and I saw it together, and we just we yelled at each other. Like I drove him home, and we yelled at each other the whole time about how was, horrible this I was film there, was. It was
3: their I know. Oh, right. I had yeah. to tell you guys to up in the theater. And I
0: apologize for that. That was very inappropriate. But there, like there were, near the end of the film, there were, there were a couple of times where I actually said, What? You, you're fucking kidding me. And did anybody, like, get up and leave? There were lots of groans from the audience. Good. When we were planning to go see this, Gary, uh, who's been on the podcast before he went to Skepticon with us, he said, Jem, don't. Don't spend money on this. I looked at the reviews on IMDb, and I'm like, oh, this looks like an awesome film. IMDb lied. It lied so much.
1: How many uh, centrifuges out of five would you give Prometheus?
0: I would give Prometheus a whopping zero centrifuges. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, I'd agree with that. Everybody's on board with the zero centrifuge rating. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> Anything else anyone wants to mention, or shall we wrap it up?
3: We can wrap it up, I think.
0: Wrap it up, Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. My name is Jim Newman. Joining me today were Ashlyn Noble. Hi, everyone. Laura Creek-Newman. Good night. And Robert Schindler. Hey, bye. Good night, everybody. Now I splice in the outro. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at L-U-E-E podcast at winnipegskeptics.com, or you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at slash L-U-E-E podcast. Our music is produced by our music director, Ian Leon. Uh, I'm going to skip the usual intro, because I just spliced that in in post, because I'm lazy that way. The very famous uh, French actor who was basically an extra in the film. He had, like, two lines. That's, uh, what, Gérard Depardieu? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Gérard Depardieu. I'm probably going to splice something in there with me actually pronouncing it correctly. (laughs) Um, You know. But I thought That thought that 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 was actually really funny. But yeah, like the, yeah, yeah.
2: Yep also. yep yep.
0: It is uh I would say it is hmm.
1: it is a movie <laughs> about time travel. <laughs> is it wrong that when Laura said integral I heard Nintendo after previously talking about uh it Roll?
3: <laughs> I think so, Robert. I was like,
0: Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm I'm sorry, I should give other people an opportunity to rate things. This isn't just the Jem Newman show. We can no, Jem, just the- I think
3: it is the Jem Newman show. <laughs>